Hey, Joe, what do you know? Well, among other things, that there is a rock over there. What do you mean you know there is a rock over there? What do you mean, what do I mean? Do you want me to go pick it up and bash you in the noggin with it? What I mean is, what exactly are you asserting when you declare, I know that there is a rock over there? I mean to say that I am in a state such that I believe that I am looking at a rock. This belief is justified, because here I stand, sober and conscious, with an unobstructed view of an object that I believe to be a rock due to my previous causal historical interaction with rocks and my underlying background, quote-unquote, theory, if you will, of rocks. If pressed, as apparently I am today, I can examine the rock with my other sensory modalities as well as scientific instruments and ask other expert human beings until it is proven beyond a reasonable doubt to everyone that it is indeed a rock, at which point I will confidently pick it up and kill you with it for making me go through all this. But what if you do all that and it wasn't a rock the whole time? What? In order for you to know that it's a rock... Doesn't it have to be a rock? You can't know something false, can you? <sighs> yes, obviously, it has to be a rock in order for me to know it is a rock. Well, then what if it isn't a rock after all? Oh, Jesus. I just told you I have a justified belief about that object, and it is a rock. Oh, well, I don't deny that you have a justified belief. In fact, you are willing to go to greater lengths than I to show just that. But my question remains. What if this fine specimen, about which you are getting so worked up, turns out not to be a rock? Look, I already admitted if, and that's a big if, if it's not a rock, I would be wrong. I would actually not know or have known that it was a rock. And I know what you're going to say next. You're going to say in some smarmy tone of voice, and is it not at least possible, my dear sir, that this object is indeed not a rock? Well, isn't it? Your dick. Yeah, well. <laughs> we did, we pulled so. that off. We, pulled we, it off. We pulled that off. Yeah. Acting. So we, yeah. Yes. <laughs> I know. I no mistakes. No must. Namaste. No mistakes. Uh, I'm You're Ryan. Not Joe. You're Ryan. And I'm That's Harland. right. I. I am sometimes <laughs> a dick, but you know. Yeah. That's the name of the guy, Dick and Joe, and this is, the uh, Dodler's Philosophy Podcast. I'm like, what is this? Yeah, the Doddler's philosophy, you know by now. We're getting practiced. Mm, big time. You get thrown off by us having a scripted <clears throat> lead-in, though, this time. That was pretty, uh, that was intense. Uh, but I think we, we're, we're uh, now through it. We feel, you know, like we've got this big weight lifted off our shoulders. Uh, I can yeah. open a beer. <laughs> we've earned it. <laughs> anyway uh what are we gonna what are we talking what's the whole point of this act that we just did and all that crap like what are we what are we doing tonight 
we're talking about skepticism. Hurrah. Um, and one of the points of that little uh, vignette is that I think many, most people, everybody who does this philosophy thing has encountered the idea of skepticism many times, and it often is, seems to me to be frustrating to a lot of people, that it's kind of like, you know, freshman dorm room arguments when the sophomoric children realize, oh yeah, well guess what, maybe nobody knows anything. <laughs> and it ha tends to irk some people, I think. Like our poor Joe. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> However, it also seems that, at least as far as I can tell, the Joes of the world have not succeeded at refuting even the simplest of skeptical arguments. They typically seem to just uh, obstinately deny... like. You know, it's just, uh, it's a problem. You know, the problem of skepticism. <laughs> we don't know how to resolve this, but it doesn't seem to lead to very many skeptics. Well, I mean, because, you know, Dick has made a murderer out of Joe, and Dick isn't around anymore because Joe killed him. So, I don't, that's why. There's your answer. Oh, we have different interpretations of the of this play. I didn't think Joe would go through with it. I thought well, he would I mean, just shake his head and walk off. You just ended it with God, you're right, a dick, yeah. and then not like whack, you know? <laughs> um, or maybe Dick turns around all proud of himself and Joe like comes up from behind. Um, yeah, so clearly there's, there is this uh, thing about skeptics that is annoying. And yet maybe you're saying it's, well, you don't like to say things are necessary, but it's important. It seems pretty important to me. Um, it would have significant behavioral consequences for most people, if nowhere else than the way they do epistemology. In To my interpretation and perception, most people, most of the time, either are directly being dogmatic or behaving in such a way that entails truth claims, knowledge claims, dogmatic behaviors. And were people to fully adopt to the best of their ability a skeptical attitude, worldview, orientation, they would behave significantly differently. Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that always pops into my head whenever you say things like, you know, you know, the dogmatic thing, I always think, well, in this case, somebody could be like, well, I think you're being, you know, dogmatic in your skepticism. What say you, skeptic? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, yeah. To, uh, to go back to the freshman dorms or whatever... I think there is an almost trivial way to be a dogmatic skeptic. It's just that I'm unaware of anyone, any 
serious philosophers, mm. anyone that we would listen to or take time to debate with, I don't think anyone does that. I agree it would be incoherent to claim, you know, uh, well, I know that no one knows anything or it is the truth that there is no truth or any of those sorts of things. I don't think that sort of claim is necessary to motivate a pretty thoroughgoing skeptical attitude and behavior and behavior change. Right, right, right. So, um, that's what we're going to spend most of tonight on. I'm going to present to you and zero listeners. Well, we have maybe one listener. Um, <laughs> we have, we got one. I think so. Yeah. Well, well yeah. nice. <laughs> you know who you are. <laughs> we, we're we know who progress. that person is too. That's at least anyway. You have to start. We somewhere. almost had two. We had like one point two for a second there, I think, and then it was like right away to one. If we didn't turn some people off, we'd be doing it wrong. Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're turning us off. Um. So yeah, what's your what's your whole deal? You know, you know, I have to start out with the, I have to do this near the beginning, right? Again, as a methodology for turning people off, I like to read <laughs> quotes from philosophers yes. before we get uh -huh, started. Please. Um. So the paper that I wrote, in which is presented the argument that I will be presenting tonight, is entitled "The Mischief Lieth Here," and that anachronistic phraseology comes from this quote from Barclay uh, that runs like this. It's from a, he wrote this certain thing in a dialogue form the, between these characters, Hylas and I think Felonius. And one, this is one of the things that Hylas says in this dialogue. I was considering the odd fate of those men who have in all ages, through an affectation of being distinguished from the vulgar, or some unaccountable turn of thought, pretended either to believe nothing at all, or believe the most extravagant things in the world. That would be the skeptic, you know. That's what the a common man might think of the skeptic. They pretend to believe nothing, or to make extravagant <laughs> claims. This, however, might be born if their paradoxes and skepticism did not draw after them some consequences of general disadvantage to mankind. But the mischief lieth here, that when men of less leisure see them who are supposed to spend their whole time in the pursuits of knowledge, professing an entire ignorance of all things, or advancing such notions as are repugnant to plain and commonly received principles they will be tempted to entertain suspicions concerning the most important truths which they had hitherto held sacred and unquestionable. <laughs> so kind of like the a more literary version of the Dick and Joe play, this is like the skeptics come in, they say these things that are obviously ridiculous, extravagant, they pretend to believe nothing. No one can believe nothing. And that there's a danger in this, that, you know, there, this, he sees it as mischief. You know, when the common man 
the man of less leisure. See, the philosophers, like the dawdle, they're just dawdling <laughs> around. They've got all this time supposedly pursuing knowledge, etc. Uh, they can tempt the common man to entertain suspicions containing important truths. So, you know, just the that this is a dangerous idea to to many, apparently. But that's what I like, and that's what I want to do. I want to, uh, what is it, to tempt everyone to entertain suspicions concerning whatever their most important truths are. Okay, so what is Harlan's dangerous idea? Normative meta-epistemological skepticism. A.K.A.? And this came from my friend Ryan when I initially presented this idea to him. He immediately noticed the acronym <laughs> NME skepticism, which sounds a lot like enemy skepticism. So that's what we've been calling it since. Again, uh, with the motif of it being dangerous. Yeah. It's, the it's enemy. perfect. <laughs> yeah, I quite like that as well. Uh, disclaimer. There's got to be lots of disclaimers mm -hmm. when you're around a skeptic. I don't know this to be, wink, original, but I am unaware of whoever else has said it before me, if someone has. So theoretically, what you're going to hear tonight is my fault. We'll see. Um, but the initial motivation to pop up to the meta level and to do it in a normative way was to avoid this basic fallacy of that some people accuse the skeptics of being just obviously self-refuting. Well, how can you know that you know nothing? It's really, you know. So this, among other things, it dodges that, but then it does a lot of other things that I think are good. Okay. So anyway, that's what it's called. Enemy skepticism, we'll call it. Uh, it's not a claim about knowledge or truth or whatever these things it's a claim about claims about knowledge truth etc that's what makes it meta epistemology to me and the way that i phrase it is like this a reasonable and responsible epistemic agent ought not assert knowledge claims or truth claims. I don't even know which way I should say it. Sometimes it sounds better to me to say knowledge, sometimes truth. Just kind of a knowledge claim would entail a truth claim the way I define words, whatever. Mm. So I think we'll just stick with knowledge for tonight if that works. Yeah, that's fine. You just shit all over the place. That's go for it. Oh, you're gonna be shitted on. This whole thing is normative. <laughs> so um the thing that I just want to stress up front about that claim that a reasonable and responsible epistemic agent ought not assert knowledge claims is that it's very highly mitigated and conditional. It's based on accepting a maxim or principle called epistemic responsibility that we'll talk about. It applies only over reasonable agents who value this epistemic responsibility and stuff and it's 
it's a discourse norm type thing. So it's not making claims about truth, knowledge, reality, etc. It's attempting to argue that this, if you act this way, you will succeed better at your intellectual projects. Okay. You like that? Does that help? Is that good? It's real good. Real good. <laughs> Should I just keep going? Well, I think yeah. Or do you want no, to I think... step in with something? Well, I was just, I wasn't going to step in too hard. I was just going to step in and um, you know, you've said some things, so I, I have some questions. What is an epistemic agent? And why should I care? Why should you care is a hard one. Um, I don't know if I'm going to even attempt to do that yet. Oh, okay. But I do have in my back pocket a whole bunch of definitions, including one for epistemic agent. Cool. But that's actually one of the harder ones for, in, for me. But here's a shot. Epistemic agents are bounded, finite systems which have beliefs about their environments, is one of the definitions I've made. And then as soon as I say that, I feel immediately the burden to talk about what belief is, because I think that's a pretty contentious and complicated word and concept. Okay. But before I do that, I need to make another disclaimer. Oh, that I... In the course of doing this sort of stuff, making these sorts of arguments, there's a end goal, right, that I want to get to this skeptical position. So when defining my terms, I have the higher level goal of maximal inclusion. I want to have a, as minimal a construal as I can over these non- directly related to the ultimate goal term. I want to be able to bring as many people along as possible, right? Not turn people off or alienate them. Like, if I define epistemic agents too narrowly, then a significant, a more significant portion of the audience will be like, oh, well, I don't believe in those, or I don't care about those, I'm, and then get turned off from continuing. Right. So I want to be as broad as possible with all of these. Almost such that the audience members might be like, okay, you're barely saying anything then, but like almost everything meets that definition. Good. I want it to be that way. <laughs> so for beliefs, I want to go with as metaphysically inert and non-contentious version of a kind of Daniel Dennett instrumentalist intentional stance thing as I can. That beliefs would just be, or a system would count as having beliefs if it is well modeled by an external scientist or whatever, such that their behavior is predictable and explainable by attributing beliefs to them. So it could, I want it to be totally possible that there are no such things as beliefs, period. It just could be a theorist's fiction, whatever. Okay. But 
So the epistemic agent is any bounded finite system which is explicable and predictable by attributing beliefs to them. Right. Is that clear enough? Well, did you, I mean, okay, sure. That's clear enough, except I wasn't sure if you had a definition of beliefs or if you were just kind of saying, well, it's a particular behavior set and that's really what's most important is your perspective on it and what you're going to call that, you know, is that what you meant primarily? You know, the whole intentional stance thing that you were talking about. Yeah, that's meant to be a really broad, inclusive definition of belief. Okay. All right. I mean, there can be others, and at various points in my different editions of trying to write this down, I've used various other ones, some of which are more metaphysically burdensome than others right and frankly you know this is a part of the uh, discussion where i'm not going to nitpick about your definitions maybe you know you lay those out i then will take them and then you then have argument or what have you and then we can talk about that a little bit more probably um but so far so good if um i'm done with that i just wanted to know what you meant by epistemic agent Okay. It's also interesting to me that that's the one piece that you would most zoom in on right away. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, we'll eventually, we're going to have a episode, I think, about argument in general and what we take those to be and what the pieces are and how they work. Right, eventually. But just to anticipate that slightly, one of the things that I think is very important is definitions and that whoever the proponent of the argument gets to define things any way they want to, kind of like it works in competitive debate. Uh, sure. Then you you know you run through the argument with those definitions. Then it's a, a dispute method for someone else to challenge a definition at a later time. So yeah, I like that you're willing to say, "All right, fine, you can define it however you want." Uh, um, real quick, real yeah. quick. Why is it interesting mm -hmm. that I chose to focus on epistemic agent? What would you have expected me to focus on instead? I would guess that other people in this order would be interested in um, maybe knowledge first. I don't know. I guess I don't know the order. But reasonable, responsible, and knowledge. I would have all expected before epistemic agent. Oh. <laughs> um, well, did you already define knowledge? Nope. I don't think I've defined much of anything yet, except epistemic agent and then the sub. Do you want to go around and, and, and uh, defining the key things that you would like to define? And then as we are maybe in... Further down in the discussion, you can, if need be, define something. You know, are there some key key things you'd like to define that? Because I'm sure, as you were describing earlier, you're like, you know, you're, you know, you say something and then you, it's like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. You know, when you 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 
talk about some definition and immediately I want to be able to talk about beliefs. And so I have to take a step back, you know, like, so what of the step backs do you, um, you know, want to save for maybe later? And what are the things that you really want to step forward? Should we know? So like, what is, what is knowledge? That seems important here. Yep. Um, again, to be as inclusive as possible. The only, I think, you can watch for me and check if I'm right about this. The only attributes that I need to be included in knowledge to run my argument are what they call the classical definition of knowledge in the literature of justified true belief. There's a lot of additional debate as to whether we need to append anything to that or what to add. And of course, there are other construals entirely, but that's the classic one from Plato on down and the most popular, and it makes sense to me. So for the purposes of this argument, we're just going to consider knowledge to mean justified true belief. Okay. And then, of course, we'll talk about what all of those components mean, uh, the sub-definitions for those. But this may be dense, but I'm just going to run through well, wait, wait, wait. the whole oh, thing. No, well, I'm not saying, think? well, what I'm trying to say is, so you define knowledge, but you don't have to justify, or justify, you don't have to define, you know, justifi justified or truth or whatever. We can get to that. I mean, we just did a whole damn episode about what truth is. Right. So, <clears throat> um, what I'm trying to say is, you know, hit the key ones and then we can get to some of the other ones later. Um, so you've already got belief twice, one in the system, system, um, epistemic yep. agents and one in knowledge, but you know, and, and maybe that kind of means it kind of rises to the top a little more of the sort of sub, you know, uh, uh, words to define or whatever, but, um, like, what are some of the other words that you think need to go out there? So we've got epistemic agent, we've got knowledge. Those seem to, like, be, be key ingredients here. What other key ingredients can we look at that you think are important before we start moving along into the argument? And then later we can be like, I can be like, well, okay, really, let's talk about belief. Or really, let's talk about truth again. Let's recap that. You know what I mean? Because we don't know exactly where it's yep. going to go. But let's not dig in so deep that, like, we're just like a fucking dictionary, you know? Okay, all right. Well, I eh, I have a tendency to do too many then. So one, the, another one that we for sure need is this responsible part, right? right? What do you mean a responsible epistemic agent? Right. And so I that's where I want to bring in something that I usually don't do. So even I become suspicious at this point. But a maxim or a principle that I'm calling epistemic responsibility. So a responsible epistemic agent is one who, in that moment, in a given context, temporarily, is adopting the maxim of epistemic responsibility, by which I mean the orientation to honestly represent one's epistemic position to the best of one's ability. And I think, and you can maybe spiel for a minute on this, I get the impression that 
science is pretty good at that. And I don't even remember what the terms are. Is it like a confidence interval or is that what a delta is, etc.? That we're going to express our claim and then we're going to attach to it how confident we are and why. Yeah, I mean, you know, um, science is all, you know, scientists in, in particular when we use statistics. Um, it's a tool to be able to assess you know, or or take into account any you know the the fallibility of the scientist or any any things that you just anything you can't account for that may um, contribute to any kind of error in whatever your estimate is, and so you have a plus or minus, you have some kind of value, and you have you say well within this range we think you know this measure is you know being taken or whatnot at this instance or what have you. Uh, is that what you're you're wondering? I think so. To the extent that from the outside, as a total non-scientist, this is something that I think scientists are good at, and I think philosophers in general suck at. <laughs> and I wish that we could emulate you guys more on epistemic responsibility. Mm. As a sort of example to try to make clear, more clear what epistemic responsibility is, consider a case of epistemic irresponsibility, such as you might get from a politician. Uh, but in this case, it won't be, it'll be a sympathetic view of a politician, not a cynical one, though I typically go for the latter. <laughs> but, you know, imagine we're, you know, in some kind of Alan Sorkin scenario where the president is actually a decent person <laughs> obviously fiction and they have hard decisions to make they need to go into their stateroom and maybe hear the opinions of the others or like a picard type right if captain picard were the president make it so G give me all your thing but at some point they need to make a decision and go forth and act from that or whatever probably it's going to be pragmatically and rhetorically useful for them to come out of the deliberations and behave with extreme confidence, if not certainty. <laughs> yeah. This is what we shall do. And it, you know, it motivates your populace. It, there are a lot of extraneous benefits to expressions of certainty in certain contexts. But... It's epistemically irresponsible. Picard knows, President Picard, when he comes out and does that, knows that he <laughs> is not honestly representing his epistemic position to the best of his ability. He is purposefully overstating the case for other reasons. Right. Maybe his epistemic position is, I don't have very good intelligence about this. My expression of my own confidence level would be about 30%, but the other avenues have even lower percent, so this is where we're going to go. But a lot of times, a leader, someone in a leadership position, chooses not to be epistemically responsible. Mm -hmm. So this argument means to apply only to those cases where the agent or agents in question do value epistemic responsibility and want to 
behave that way to the as well as they yeah can. so um i just want to riff on that just a little bit another example i was thinking of is that usually what people talk about when they're on the dating scene or whatever or what they're looking for in a you know partner or whatever is you know they or not what they're looking for but what they find attractive is like confidence or something like that i've i've heard people say things like along those lines uh, the person who's like not sure of themselves and whatnot may be taking a more honest approach to how they actually feel about whatever the precariousness of their romantic situation or whatever. Um, but they're still just, you know, it's it it's it's not the right time uh, to to be sitting there sweating bullets in the you know blind date, you know round robin or whatever they call that crap. Um, so, yeah, I just, uh, I, I think that's part of, it's another way maybe to put it for the one individual who's, who's listening. And then um, uh, the other part I was going to say about with the science stuff, maybe in, in the idealization of something like peer review and just review in general, when people review your work, that also kind of keeps people on their toes um and uh maybe they're a little bit more honest and accurate about how they represent um what their you know what their research came up with and stuff like that because it's likely they'll be in a room with a lot of other smart people who pay attention to detail and could catch them in a way that would be uh number one embarrassing and also number two is sort of a virtue to be you know honest or whatever it's just something we kind of value and to be caught not not being that way could be there could be penalties for you know uh your, your social penalties or something along those lines i know that's a little bit different um but i kind of think that also comes into play there's a pressure maybe like a social pressure sometimes in the sciences to be as you would say epistemically responsible yeah, I like that example. That's good. It's another separate argument to try to motivate that maxim and to say, well, some of the time we should value epistemic responsibility, but we're going to just glide over that for now, right? And assume that there's pre some prima facie cases where that's not totally unreasonable. Some of the time we do value honestly reporting our epistemic positions. Amen. So that's that component. I also think we need to talk about the what has been the elephant in the room amongst many audience members, including, I believe, you at some time, that there's a big fat ought in the middle of this. Fuck you! Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, your reflexes work. <laughs> Guess your nervous system is in good order. Good so. order. So I to expose a personal detail uh don't believe in morality, ethics, whatever. Like you can call me a nihilist if you want, whatever. Nihilist. This has nothing to do with moral thoughts. I think that that term and normativity in general can apply to in many different ways. And morality is only one place that it has been used and misused. But for me, in this argument, 
I want people to read the art as being what I like to call an engineering art. Uh, that I would define this way and then explain, hopefully, what this means. An argument-based methodological hypothesis about what behaviors function optimally to succeed at one's projects. So that it's a con like kind of a conditional, pragmatic, efficiency-based endeavor. That if you are trying to build a bridge and one of the things that you care about is that it doesn't fall down for at least 10 years and only needs to be inspected once every three months and list out the specifications that you desire, then in this, in this sense of ought, one might say something like, well, you ought to build it out of steel and concrete rather than popsicle sticks. You know, it has nothing to do with morality. It's just that given any given value set and constraints and project, if you are finite, you will probably prefer solutions that are efficient at achieving your own goal. Kind of a best practices type thing. That's all this ought means. It's best practices. Okay. I. It's funny. I still have problems. <laughs> I still. I'm like. I'm trying. I like. I'm like. It raises all these things, um, for me. And I don't know if we want to just keep. I know this is me in these in these episodes. I'm like. I don't know if we want to keep moving or if I'm slowing us down. Uh, I don't think this is the place right at the moment we're here to talk about enemy skepticism although oughts are a big part of it so are epistemic agents and epistemic responsibility and knowledge and all that kind of stuff so i'm okay with um moving along you've set up what an ought means you're talking about it being an engineering ought it's not morality let's just Let's just move forward. Put a pin in it. Yeah. Come back to it when we agree about everything else and we still have more time we want okay. to fill. Okay, yeah. And then assertion, I don't even know if that needs to be defined or not. It's I use it pretty stringently to declare positively or firmly, maintain to be true. Um, so if you aren't doing that, then enemy skepticism is not complaining about you. But I see that sort of behavior often. So that's what this is asking them, what it's telling them they ought not do. All right. Yeah. Okay. So. And then for truth, we're, you know, like you said, we just did an episode on that and we are going to just stipulate to what they call correspondence truth, a property of semantic objects such that they accurately represent that which is the case. Um. Uh, and that's, of course, a big part of this, because that's the component that the subsequent argumentation is going to be challenging. As in the uh, Dick and Joe play or whatever, we want, they were talking about, can you, you know, I ask you what you know, you say, here's an example of perceptual knowledge, there's a rock. In order for that to be knowledge... 
everyone in italics, don't use absolutes, maybe not everyone, almost everyone agrees that in order for the proposition, the claim, the sentence to count as knowledge, it has to be true. That to me is the least contentious property of knowledge. And, and am I off on that? Um, as I understood it, that that was the that was the last piece that they put in because you can have justified beliefs, but to have a justified true belief. Sorry, I got into a little John Searle there. Well, uh, that's what as I understood it. Knowledge, even the little philosophy that I have learned over the years. That truth was the last component included. I don't think that's right, but I didn't recently reread the Theotetus or wherever that happened. You can have a justified belief, but that, you know, when you insert the true, you know, all of a sudden it changes the color of the situation. It does, yeah. Thanks. Right. It, well, yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> fucking saying. And you're like, let me argue with you. It's a three-word definition for crying out loud. Oh, he's silent. He's like, well, <laughs> anyway, I don't think this is going to hurt us later down the road, is it? I prefer to cry silently. <laughs> yes, you do. In a dark room. <laughs> Not out loud. That's obscene. Someone will hear. <laughs> and they will know my shame. All right. Uh, so those are the definitions. There are more yes, there in are. the written version, but who gives a shit, right? Right. So... We, you know, I can reference them if they come up as problematic later in the discussion. So that was definitions. Now, yeah, okay. So to restate the initial claim, yes, kind of plugging in the definitions in place of the, you know, to expand it out. Do it. Here's the the long version of the claim: an agent who respects argument and who values honestly reporting their epistemic position will succeed more fully in their philosophical projects if they entirely refrain from dogmatic behaviors. Dogmatic behaviors, including any time you claim or behave in a way that entails uh, knowledge or truth claims. Okie dokie. What's your fucking argument, dude? What's the argument? The argument is super short and sweet. Most of the work happens is sub-argumentation for one of the premises. So premise one of the argument is just basically a restatement of the maxim. If an agent in a given situation is behaving in a reasonable and epistemically responsible way, so that you just, it, that's the mitigating premise. We kind of assume it. Statement of values. Premise two, and... If that agent is aware of an indefeasible argument that they might be wrong, then, conclusion, that agent ought not engage in any behavior which entails knowledge claims. Which is the, you know, the QED. Okay. So, if you accept the values and if you are aware that there are good arguments that you might be wrong, then you ought not say it. Because, I don't, well, does that make sense to you? Or should I keep talking? 
No, it it makes sense to me. I don't know about our one listener, but uh, it makes sense to me. I I don't even know. I forget all the fancy other language terms as to what kind of logic this is, but it's one of the really basic ones. If you accept this maxim, then and you accept that you might be mistaken, then you shouldn't say, I know there's a rock over there, because then you're just, it's a pretty short little, you're contradicting yourself. Right. If you say you know there's a rock over there, then you're saying it is true that there's a rock over there, but then you would also be willing to admit, well, I might be wrong. So if you say you might be wrong, then don't say, X is true because you don't you might be wrong about that and if you hold both of those things then the claim is you're being epistemically irresponsible and we already agreed not to do that <laughs> and this is for your um fellow uh earth friends who engage in intellectual work such that they be philosophers or scientists. Is this for, you know what I'm saying? Like, is this for when you get out and you're pumping the gas and you're having a quick conversation with somebody? Or is this for more heavier endeavors? Mm, It's more directly for heavier endeavors. But it's for any context where we care about epistemic responsibility. Okay. So depending on how broadly you want to abide by that is where this would have any force. And I think there are plenty of contexts in daily life where we, where I would not argue that you should care about it. But there are others, and important ones, where I think we should, including when you're quote-unquote doing philosophy, when you're trying to write a paper that you're going to publish in a journal, when you're doing your best to have a good-faith debate with someone else over a topic. When, you know, whenever we, in those serious contexts, whatever, that's where it really should apply, I think. Yeah, and I'm glad that should be hopefully clear to our one listener that it's not just that this applies everywhere, every all the time, in everything, right? And so... Right. Because I kind of think that if that isn't explicitly um, mentioned or what have you, laid out, uh, then, you know, I, I've always thought that that's where the biggest... Because, I mean... Uh, to our one listener, you know, obviously I've known this guy uh, for a while, so I've absorbed this argument for, you know, he said the first writings of it were 10 years ago, so for a good chunk of that. And, um, you know, I, I think sometimes people feel like when you lay that argument out, like you're taking something away from them or what have you, you know, something, that something being their ability to flexibly you know, talk about stuff in, you know, all the contexts that they find themselves in. And you may be adding that there are some contexts that we should restrict 
that flexibly discussing things in a, in you know like it, the the reflexive uh, response of saying, well, of course there's a rock over there, and you know making these kinds of claims about what is going on. Um, but that's always been the thing that I have personally noticed when you lay these discussions out to others in all the various ways that you've done it. I mean, sometimes you do it in the way that you just did it, but other times it just happens to crop up in a conversation and then you peek some, someone's like, what? And then you have to go through a lot of stuff. And, um, but that's the one thing that I think that this argument, it, it almost first, I don't know what it is about it. Maybe it's the ought it's the shoulda, coulda, woulda, you know? Um, and even though we've just already laid out that, it's not a moral lot. It's as you were saying, it's like an engineering lot. Um, and I guess to an extent, the epistemic agent gets to decide what that engineering ought applies to and what it doesn't apply to. But that just often just gets missed. I don't know what it is. It's probably, I think it's really just the ought. I think a long time ago I said, you know, you should just say let's, you know, <laughs> like, you know, you could just be like, well, let's not make a knowledge claim, guys, you know, um, and that might. Right. I, rem you I know? remember that now as being <laughs> one of the ways we resolved that semantic dispute. <clears throat> right. That you have a problem with ought statements. I said, well, I think you can get everything I want to get out of this if we rephrase the claim <laughs> from thou shalt to well, can we agree that we're gonna? Yeah. Like, let's do this. Yeah. And cause to me, those are the same thing. Because I am so uninterested in any sort of universal fact of the matter about ought statements that that doesn't even play in my co field of connotations. I guess, but, yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'd be happy to say, let's do this. Yeah, English 2018 or whatever, however you want to talk about it. I think ought is still one of those like, you know, you know, it's like you're scolding a dog or whatever, and the, the slinking away with the ears back, and you know, you know. Um, I think that kind of is what it tends to bring out in people, um, and your intention with using it is clearly not that at this point in the episode here, as we've you know, clearly laid it out. But will the careful listener hear that? Or will Ott go right to their little, like, red button? Anyway. Well, by this point, you know, they don't have much excuse left. We've gone through it. And we'll probably go through it again, because I still even want to I know. revisit why you have such a distaste for that. Well, I mean, I could just but, go... Yeah, anyway, yeah. Yes, it's a conditional, mitigated... Argument. Enemy skepticism is relatively small in scope as skepticisms go. And the sub-arguments for premise two that I'm about to get to, I don't think are as mitigated. I think most of these have a broader scope than the enemy skeptical argument itself. But what it lacks in generality, I hope it gains in confidence. I I still feel, after these 10 years and presenting it in various venues, I haven't been persuaded out of it yet. I think it works. So, okay, so your next, so the next step here 
is then the argumentative cases that you have that focus specifically on premise two, that if the agent is aware of a indefeasible or whatever the word was argument, that they might be wrong. The fallibilism point. That's what you're focusing yeah. all these sub arguments on is we're fallible. And here, let me show you. Right. Because I think that that's, that premise is clearly the fulcrum where all the action happens because the first one is basically just a, if you accept this maxim, so there's not much, well, there is much to say there, but it's a very separate discussion. Okay. Two is what is interesting within skeptical epistemology. Are there good reasons to think that you might be wrong? You know, you know to me, fallibilism just means except that you might be mistaken. Okay. And so we've got these reasonable agents, and reasonable agents were sensitive to arguments. So now my job would be to provide them with arguments that have the conclusion, you might be mistaken, and which are whatever you want to call them. I mean, I use the word sound, that they are sound arguments, but not in the sense of logical soundness in the philosophy 101 definition where they say, a valid argument with true premises. Because ah, <laughs> that, that's irrelevant to me because that just begs the question against skepticism because it has the word truth right in it. That's a different definition. The one that I've been using, we can call it a sound argument or call it whatever you want. I'm interested in an argument with which the audience cannot articulate a flaw which is more persuasive than the argument itself. So this definition is obviously a relativistic one to a given audience, yeah. and it's about the judgment of individual epistemic agents and the conversation. It's motivated by Richard Rorty and pragmatism, you know, whatever. But... Mm -hmm. That's what I, if I can present you with an argument that you can't point out a flaw in it that wins the conversation, right? So we dispute and debate about it, and I say, here's my argument, and you say, it's flawed because of this. I challenge premise whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we go back and forth. You're going to have to win all of those arguments against all of these arguments and more. I don't think that the list that I have made is exhaustive. There have to be no skeptical arguments that work, that are indefeasible, in order for premise two to be wrong, I think. Ah. And we keep it's, saying it's, premise two. I might read it again. No, premise it, two being, if the, if the reasonable and responsible epistemic agent is aware of a sound, indefeasible argument that they might be wrong. Interesting. It's kind of like the opposite of what I think tends to be, at least maybe for like, I don't know, logical positivists, people who have the whole falsification thing or whatever. Uh, but I guess it's because you're coming from it, coming at it from the backside. Because, you know, like I think there's a famous quote by Einstein that like all he needs to be is, you know, all there needs to be is one test that, you know, shows that you know his predictions don't predict what they predict and that's then his whole thing is over 
So it's like the uh, you know his whole you know theories of relativity or what have you. Um, and I just think that's kind of funny that there would be for something like a hypothesis or a scientific theory, some people might think that it's super sensitive, so it needs to hold up the whole way for the most part. Um, and then what you're saying is all I need is one. <laughs> like they can all fail it, but if one succeeds, then I'm good, which is interesting because it's kind of, it is very much the opposite. Um, so you're saying your, your situation is so robust that one has to come through and knock them all down. What do you, uh, can you address what concerns another epistemic agent might have when they hear that? I mean, you know, can you address what you think the concerns would be? I don't see it as so opposite of the Einstein thing. In that analogy, Einstein would be the dogmatist, the person who wants to make one, at least one truth claim. But then he, Einstein would be saying, if the skeptic can give me one falsifying instance, one argument that shows that I might be mistaken about this, then I would have to abandon my knowledge claim. Oh, I see. So it is really just the flip side of the coin. Yeah, like I thought it was. All right. Yeah. Yep. But I just find it I just find it interesting um to note that at least. Uh okay. So so I'll run through my versions of a few skeptical arguments. And then again, these are all original formulations but not original in content. And I'll attempt to nod at where they come from. But the first one, <laughs> the big famous one, is just the Cartesian demon slash Wachowski brothers matrix whatever, right? Um, uh-huh. Take the thing that you believe in. That's a rock over there. You have, or you could make, a list of the totality of justification for believing that that's a rock. Joe's version in here, you know, that's when he said, well, I stand here sober and conscious with an unobstructed view. Um, I have a history of interacting with rocks. I can ask experts. I can do science. I can point instruments at it. So he spells out his justification. So whatever it is that you believe, there's a rock over there. You have a big list of justifications with that. But... If the skeptic can come up with an alternative that is consistent with your the entirety of your justification, but which also has that not being a rock, then as far as Joe is concerned, determining whether, well, that's a real rock in the real world made of material particles, blah, blah, or... That's an illusion created in my brain, which is sitting in a vat somewhere by an evil demon. If he, if there's no way for Joe to distinguish between those two things, then it seems to me that the right answer for Joe to give is, I guess I don't know. I might, I think it's a rock, but I might be mistaken. Yeah. Classic. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's certainly classic i've never read putnam's brain in a vat um nor paper. should you putnam is a disaster <laughs> but i don't like the brain in the vat because it's um 
if absurdity runs along a spectrum, it's kind of it takes it too far, a step too far. It's it's attractive. It has aesthetic appeal, appeal, a feel, aesthetic appeal. That's a new one. Um, but I don't. I don't personally relate to that one. So that one doesn't help me. Um, I don't have anything to say. You're wrong. Is yeah. there another example on well, that spectrum that sure. you could help me out with? Let's try this one. Um, there's a another contemporary, he might, he might be dead by now, philosopher, epistemologist named Fred Dretzky, who talks about the father who takes his kid to the zoo. And they're standing at the at an exhibit that is labeled zebras. And they look out across the barrier over the river and some rocks out to the field and vaguely see some equine-shaped, hairy-looking mammals over there. And there's some, they're black and white and whatever. And they say, oh, look, Johnny, there's a zebra. Well, maybe. Maybe it's a zebra, or maybe it's a cleverly painted mule. That the that this kind of shoddy, maybe <laughs> mafioso zookeeper or whatever, like, hey boss, we couldn't get a zebra in from Africa or whatever. Eh, whatever. Go grab that mule and fucking slather some paint on it and we'll just put it in the cage. <laughs> right. That I think is pretty close to the same point. The there's a list of justification for the father to claim to the son, "Yonder is a zebra." However, given the information that he has, there's nothing that really prevents it from just being a cleverly painted mule. I don't know if that one works better for you. I mean, it's definitely um, less absurd. It 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 pushes the needle, you know. I don't know, to the right. If the brain of the vat's on the left, um, it's, it, it is kind of another, like, I, I, you philosophers come up with these really extreme ways of talking about things, and I think you would have much more success um, if you just found something that was, you know, <clears throat> subtler and more quote-unquote real world or whatever. Because now I need these, you know, it's, that was the whole thing with the Chinese room for me. I was like, Jesus Christ, you know, like, you know, I've got all these little things that are popping up in my head as the thing gets explained. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, I guess, I, you know, I'm having to think of, you know, all these other um, pieces uh, that I have to now make up for the context of the painted mule to make sense when what I want is just... You know, here's a rock, um, but, you know, it turns out like fool's gold or something like that. Like that's, um, you know, you've got gold, uh, gold, <laughs> fool's gold. Uh, I'm making those all over the place tonight. Um, I don't know what they're called. I have to go look up a pinker book or whatever. I believe they're called malapropisms. There you go. Um, and, uh, but I'm thinking like. You know, fool's gold, which I used to remember what it was called. But if you don't, if you've really never seen gold, you know, in its sort of quote unquote natural state, 
then I think that's where somebody could just, you know, all you see is that color. And then you go, oh, it's gold. And then you take it into the place where you weigh the stuff and get money for it or whatever because you're yeah. you're in whatever uh you know you're in san francisco circa 18 whatever um 1849 49ers anyway um and the guy goes that's not gold <laughs> like because they have information that allows them to know that you know gold doesn't make these sharp edge you know you know uh, you know has doesn't have sharp mm-hmm. edges and stuff like that it's yeah. malleable and whatnot and Anyway, that to me would seem like a more like an example where somebody could go, oh, yeah, because you don't have to, like, consider too much beyond the thing itself, you know. So, oh, yeah, that's gold. Well, how do you know? It could be fool's gold. Yeah, as far as I can tell, that one works. You earth scientist, geologist, bastard. I'm doing a terrible job. Who doesn't want to go into a matrix or be fooled by an all-powerful evil demon yeah i know Christ. the fool's gold thing i think works too all right i'm not much of an earth scientist i don't remember what it was fucking what that mineral is called anyway pyrite that's what it's called anyway there you go one single listener it's called pyrite it's not gold um and sure as hell ain't a zebra but anyway <laughs> so that's an old long-standing argument form that's gone through a lot of different instantiations and as far as i know it doesn't have a solid defeater what it does is motivate epistemologists to entirely redefine knowledge or something right they'll become contextualists and say well it's still okay for the father to say he knows it's a zebra because most of the time in most zoos listening and uh, trusting the little sign in front of each exhibit as accurately reflecting the animal inside, we can trust that institution. So that's good enough. Well, let's call that not. And they just, and to me, that just abandons the core purpose of the term. Knowledge entails truth. It's not a rock. Or, I mean, it's not true that you know it's a rock if it's not a rock. Even Joe agreed to that. So, though there are things that people say, they don't just shut up after they hear this Cartesian argument. Well, I just would like but to... But they seem... It just is all cheating. It's all dodging. Like, Well, I've got a dodge for you, and I just want to also say that Joe admitted so much but just before he killed dick i mean so in some ways it's like once dick was out of the way he could go back to being a dogmatist anyway um inefficient (laughs) inefficient clunk bleeding on the ground um dodge dodge yeah he can totally say i refute it thus and (laughs) slam the rock against his head and whatever but it that's not an argument the rock doesn't um so one of the things that i think of but it may be only relevant to me and other people who've spent time thinking about mammals or whatever 
is, you know, when you go to the zoo and you see a zebra, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I think so long as you don't know what the fuck a mule looks like, you know, then you would be justified in saying, you know what, I don't know if that's a zebra, you know? Um, so there's, this goes... Are you claiming you can tell the difference between a zebra and a painted mule? Yeah, I think I would be able to. <laughs> you probably can, whatever. <laughs> that's not the point! <laughs> so, but I think that, um, here's another one for you that involves hairy mammals. The other, oh gosh, it was right after, um, after you, you were here for a visit, and then right after that, or right before that, Trump got elected, then you visited, then you left, and Rosalind was born, and then, like, later, before Christmas, so it was between, like, Thanksgiving and Christmas, so it was a few years ago, Rebecca thought she saw a dog that looked like, um, you know, it, it just kind of looked like a coyote. But there's a dog across the street that actually your dog met one time. We were walking Knox for a second. And remember those two dogs came right on out? I don't know if you remember that or not. But one of those dogs has that sort of tawny kind of look about it, you know, that a coyote has or whatever. And it's sort of scrappy looking and whatnot. And there was a, what Rebecca said, was we were getting out of the car. And of course, I didn't see any of this. So I'm only reporting what she saw. But we were getting out of the car and she thought she saw uh, that either that dog or a coyote really pulling focus on Liam, like from a, literally just across the street. And we live in a city here. So it's it's literally just, a, you know, you've been to the house. Literally right across the street, a dog like was like, huh, and its ears and everything just kind of focused in on this child, you know. And she, I didn't think anything of it. I do know from, I know, I have, you know, encountered, uh, you know, a website here in town that was done by the local university and all that kind of stuff. And it was about, you know, coyote sightings and things like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I know we're hanging out a long time on this sub argument, so I'll make it shorter here. But um, I always imagine that across the street where we are, there's a place for kids that want to, um, that are, that are troubled, you know, and they take care of them there. And so it's this big area that it's like a park almost. And I always figured that coyotes or something lives in those little bushes and stuff like that, raising pups or whatever. But I don't know. I never really thought about it. And so when Rebecca mentioned it, I just still thought it was probably that dog because I have seen that dog, what I thought was that dog, running out, you know, one time meeting us, Harland, but another time just kind of moping about in the yard. And then, sure enough, like, we were driving home before Christmas and I put a picture of it up on Instagram and all that kind of stuff. And I feel like I have a good sense for what a coyote looks like. And there was a coyote crossing the street. And I was thinking like, huh, maybe it was a coyote. But to Rebecca's eyes, she wouldn't be able to say whether it was a zebra or a painted mule or it was a coyote or that dog across the street. And to me, I think it, you know, to some extent, I don't know how much this helps or hurts or 
is a beneficial thing to this side argument. But for some reason, one of the, I don't want to call it an objection, but definitely the kind of context you can provide in in a, in a, in a case where you might be feeling compelled to say, that's a coyote. It's true. Like how far can one make, uh, you know, a, an, like, I guess an argument to say, well, never mind. Shit. I've wasted all this time. Cause I could always just be like, well, I'm not absolutely certain, but I would just say that because I'm, I'm not, I'm just more confident that it's a coyote than a dog or something. I don't know. Poor me. I've gone on too long. <laughs> I know. Is that a good enough response? That's a perfect response. I also heard the, <laughs> the whiskey go bonk at one point. That was good. Yeah. I mean, I had to put, put that up to the mic. It's color for the podcast. Definitely. I can always. You got to hear the cork. Boop. Yeah, I can, I can pull that up whenever. I can do anything. Um, so anyway, I think. I mean, I get it. I get what you, what's being said here. I just want gooder. <laughs> I want gooder examples. Um, and the, I was, but the examples are irrelevant. God damn it! It doesn't matter what the examples is. What matters is the point. And so you can come up with an example where that's a hundred percent plausible because it is, as far as you know, an accurate anecdote of something that happened in your life you're like well i wasn't sure if it was this or that and i'm like yeah that's the point then you can increase your certainty to the case where you're sitting in front of the beer you just cracked open you're like yeah this is a beer bottle i know it is i do here i am drinking it and then the examples have to get more and more in your terminology absurd such that it becomes something like, well, maybe you're in the matrix and it's just a bunch of ones and zeros and there is no beer. And then you're like, well, fuck, I guess it's possible. I don't like that example. It's absurd, but I can't prove it wrong. Okay, you know. Yeah, but if you're trying to get people on your side, the examples are, I think, more important than the point. The point, can you can make a point about anything provided you have a means to access other brains and other vats, you know, it's going to be pointless, I think. Because I don't... What do you, just real quick, what do you think, as someone who's obsessed with the precise example, you don't like Matrix-style ones, right? And you do like Coyote <laughs> in the Street. What do you think about the Cartesian version where it's a dream? Maybe you're dreaming. Is that plausible or absurd to you? Well, I mean, that's kind of absurd. It almost seems sort of childish <laughs> because I think I know when I, you know, wake up, I think I know. I'm not saying I know. I just, I think I get what a dream is like, you know, when I wake up and I'm in more or less the state that I'm in now. So that one, unfortunately, if there was, if I didn't dream, then I wouldn't have a reference to say what I'm doing right now is just a dream. Um, but you're not taking enough Ambien, I think. <laughs> well, then I would ruin my chances at a new sitcom. Um, hey yo. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. That one's not as 
good either. And I would say that to me, I think examples are, are, are key. And I, I would say, um, for the sake of it literally being called an argument or a sub argument or whatever, then you're going to need that on your side more than just simply making a point and then putting out, you know, trotting out a whole bunch of examples that are hard to warm up to or hard to relate to or whatever. That's my opinion. I don't, I don't know. Maybe mm. other people are like, no, no, that's fine enough for me. And I can, I can get that, I guess, but so far as I can tell, um, yeah, for me, nothing ever really wins like a good example. Cause now I have the point, but I need some way to execute that file, you know? Yeah. Okay. It's um, like it's like I was. I d- hold on. Let yeah. me give you another example before we, you know, because I think we should probably move it on. It better be good, or I'll throw out the whole thing. Because <laughs> the example is what matters. Well, that, I'm not saying it's it's all needs to be thrown out. I'm just saying that you know you're the one who wants to improve the efficiency of your projects. Um. But I, I think of uh, there was this one paper um, I put up on the old Discord. And I don't think anyone read it, but I, so I might put it up again at some point just cause I kind of liked it. And of all people, I got it from Sam Harris. Sorry, Sam, um, for saying of all people, but yeah. anyway, um, and it was this paper just about this mathematician's lament or whatever. And in the paper, they're talking about how, um, you know, when they, when they play around with, um, when they do math, they're just looking at patterns, right? These are just patterns that they're playing around with. So you could think in particular, a little more explicitly, you can think in terms of geometry or whatnot. And there are all these little cool things that they can get out of just screwing around, you know, with, you know, you have a shape and you're like, what if I do this to it? And, oh, yeah. Or maybe you have a problem and you're like, I want to know the area of the triangle or something like that. And you can... You know, if you have other axioms or whatever at your disposal, you can apply them and have fun. But it doesn't really do anything. It doesn't really mean anything. It's just, you're just screwing around. In that, screwing around and the action of doing that is the, as you would say, the point. But it doesn't do anything for very many people, which I'm guessing that's the what we want here with your enemy skepticism is that you want it to do something for people. It doesn't do anything for people just screwing around with a triangle and trying to figure out the area or whatever it is. And using some basic, simple axioms, which are probably born out of more playing around um, until you actually like apply it to building a house or whatever it is. And all of a sudden people are like shelter, you know, use this thing that this guy played around with and, you know, make it meaningful to our, um, you know, sheeply living lives. So I, I think that's kind of the, that was the thing that I was thinking is, you know, brain in a vat doesn't help me get there and you want buy-in. So I think you want better examples. And so then until you get those good examples, the point's just going to be, oh, yeah, it's just screwing around with a triangle. And you think you know what's going on, but other people might not. And that's all I'm trying to say. 
watch this. <laughs> it should get you there. So the fact that it doesn't indicates a flaw in you as an interpreter rather than the argument. <laughs> and anyway, that's a huge claim and whatever, and yeah, it's intentionally provocative, whatever. The po- just to revisit, I'm just calling, I call it the mistake argument because it's just basic and it's old and it's whatever. You take the initial dogmatic claim, that is a rock, or I know that that is a rock. Whoever says that has a totality of justification for that claim. If anyone else is capable of telling a story which is simultaneously consistent with all of that justification, but inconsistent with the conclusion, I know that that is a rock, then Joe has to admit that he might be wrong. And any of the, what you consider distasteful examples, like the Matrix, it's, I think, fulfills what that argument requests. The Matrix example, story, is consistent with Joe's evidence, Joe's justification, that that is a rock, but inconsistent with it being a rock, because instead it's ones and zeros or whatever. Right, but that doesn't... So whether or not you find any aesthetic value to the story is irrelevant. Um, well, (laughs) aesthetic value is, you know, never, to me anyway, irrelevant. Um, It's the whole, you know, that's the only way I'm going to even come near um it's the only way i'll remember it you know and value it uh but you said something and i'm trying to like this is hilarious that we're like still stuck on this first sub argument (laughs) it might be a two-parter i didn't realize this was going to happen um What was I going to say? Damn it. You were saying something. Oh, the rock. You already have an example. You're using the rock. You know, like, and you're just, you know, Joe and Dick are talking about, um, you know, they already mentioned, you know, we already mentioned, what is it? Uh, um, uh, you know, you're basically saying, well, what if it turns out to not be a rock? And all that does is just cast doubt. But you already have the example of a rock. That's, I guess, what I was trying to say. Um, anyway. But that requires the person. Okay, that requires you... the person to already have that capacity. The epistemic agent must already be capable of having some kind of doubt. And I get it. To be an epistemic agent, you got to. You know, or, you know, you, you want, you know, you got to be reasonable, um, you know, being sensitive to arguments or what have you. And then, of course, also being epistemically responsible by being, you know, as honest about what you're thinking. Um, 
But then I guess I would just say, couldn't someone be honest about what they're thinking? They just aren't there. You know what I'm saying? Like, couldn't somebody just not really be capable of giving you what you want, but still be doing everything that an epistemic agent would be capable of doing? I'm not sure if I understand what you're getting at or not, because my brain went off on a tangent on with one of your sentences that I wondered if you were saying something similar to what Wittgenstein says in various passages of his book on certainty that we should at some point talk about. Mm. This nice little like 90-page thing that you even you might be able to read. Even me. Stick with philosophy for 90 pages. Um, something about... Because it's a fascinating little piece, and I think a lot of people misinterpret it, as, as I often do. We should talk about it. But that you... I don't know. What did you say? Uh, that the two that Joe and Dick both have to consider themselves as familiar with rocks, true, real, material rocks, whatever, however we want to specify that those things, in order to be able to doubt or deny or question them. So that is doubt itself predicated on certainty in the first place. I don't know if that's where you were going, but I pulled that out of it somehow i i mean that was i mean i wouldn't say i was thinking in terms of certainty um but it definitely in terms of you know the abstract ideology or what have you you know somehow you can kind of internalize what a rock would be and so then therefore you reference it when you go up against other things and you go oh yeah that matches the reference but i don't know maybe that is exactly what wittgenstein was saying i'm not quite sure but um i don't know if i have much more to well, and then that's another one of the ways that flexible gymnastic dogmatists try to deal with skeptical arguments is to look at reference and then say well, maybe even the people in the matrix are justified in claiming that it really is a rock because reference comes from causal connection. And the only thing that these people in the matrix have been causally connected to are matrix rocks. So when they say that is a rock, even though with prompting, they would claim that what rocks are is physical material objects, not ones and zeros being fed into their vat. What they would be mistaken about is the semantics, their conceptual level, but that when they say that is a rock, they would be saying something literally true because the reference of the term rock comes from their connection to it. I fear I am not being understood. No, I, I think I understand you. I, I don't understand you enough to repeat it all back to you. But I don't think that's exactly what I was saying. Um, but maybe that is what I was saying. Um, and I was just saying it in my way, and I'm and I need to figure out a way to either be bilingual here or 
figure out a good translation. Well, so, you know, philosophers are often Nickelodeons, right? Put a coin in and they'll just go, even if it's not what you expected or meant. Yeah. I just, I mean, are there some things you can be doubtful about and some that you have a harder time being doubtful about? Like, I guess I could understand where you could be like, well, why can't anyone just doubt anything? Um, but is it possible that there's a position where somebody could be behaving as an epistemic agent, you know, being reasonable and, um, you know, being responsible, but yet at the same time, not actually, you know, uh, capable of making that final step towards, um, arguing that they they've made a mistake because you don't I mean people I don't want or I don't buy the idea that someone just say they made a mistake because they can you know um I you'd I think you'd want them to honestly think about it and not be able to like there there need to be some discordance in what they think they can't walk away being like Joe and just being like, you know, ah, Dick is a dick. And, uh, you know, he's, you know, Joe, in my opinion, does not come away from that little play that we read off at the beginning. You know, really thinking, okay, yeah, well, maybe it is just a, you know, not a rock or something like that. I think he just was forced in that moment, in that conversation to admit that, even though I don't think he necessarily accepts that. Right, but when he doesn't accept it, my claim is he's being unreasonable because he can be presented with arguments with which he cannot articulate a flaw that indicate he might be mistaken. So if he doesn't admit that he might be mistaken, then he's being, by my definitions, unreasonable because he's not being sensitive to indefeasible argumentation what if like someone's not capable of it and they think they're the ones with the upper hand and you're being unreasonable what if there's like how do you know then in that moment who's made a mistake the only way i can adjudicate things like that is just further conversation so what about the case where an agent is quite literally, for some reason or other, incapable of appreciating an argument. That's a tough one, right? Uh, I don't know what to say then, or how to establish if that were the case, other than perhaps various types of, I don't know what this is, like pseudo-idealization There is no such thing, of course, as the ideal rational agent, but we can posit one and strive to approximate it in the same sense as there may be no such thing as a perfect circle or a straight line, but we can, through engineering and science and trying really hard, strive to approximate these putative universals, like straightness. And we can get things straight enough to achieve most of our projects. 
building skyscrapers and getting from point A to point B and whatever else we use straightness for. Um, so that the whole thing ultimately cashes out in practical, daily, actual conversations such as that we are having now. And if you reach an impasse, it seems... I don't know if this, again, if this is what you're saying or if I'm just extrapolating new stuff from it. <laughs> but at any given impasse, it might be the case that there is a genuine disagreement that cannot be resolved and will not be resolved even by adding more agents or whatever. But it might be that or it might be Dick is right, but Joe can't get it because he has a headache or whatever. Or, you know, he's a, he's a dog and they don't know English. or we, For whatever reason, that the thing is incapable of appreciating the argument. That seems always possible and indistinguishable. So we strive to do our best. So am I even addressing what you want? No, I guess you you are. My only I think I'm going to say this one last thing and then I think we should move on. That way then I get the last word. <laughs> I just realized that's what it would sound like. But my thing That is the last. <laughs> um you said uh, how would I adjudicate that? I guess I would maybe adjudicate it through um you know uh more conversation or whatever. And I was just trying to think like how I think one adjudicates these things as best as they can, because I think it can be hard to, it can be difficult to deal with the abstract or even an example like the rock where, you know, you're, you know, two people are bickering about that. I think, um, you know, the, uh, this is where I think an argument from analogy, which is these examples that we're giving or what have you, um, to an extent, it's an argument from analogy, I suppose. But that's where these things, can, I think, come in and adjudicate. Because it's like someone's just wired differently. And you need to find the thing that kind of unlocks that wiring. And they go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, now I get it. That's why I was say that's all I was trying to say. I think good examples, good types of analogies work because they adjudicate where people often fail because they use different kinds of words or they just don't really think in the same exact way. But I think that the kernel of you know information that is trying to be passed on can be but you need sometimes some good examples and so to me it's not that your example comes first or whatever or anything like that it's just that i think that's to me so far as the many years that i have lived that seems to be the one thing that tends to work really well you could d describe downward causation and be like and this is the point but not until you give me something like Donald Campbell's example about the ant pincers do I really get to finally kind of sink my teeth into the point. Um, and, you know, lots of people can come and go saying what the point is in their way of saying it. I may even disagree and bicker with each other about that. But not until you actually give me something that I can work with do we, you know, really kind of get somewhere. And there's a feedback, I think, where you can kind of improve 
that. That was something you talked about a long time ago, I thought, about like metaphorical feedback or something like that where the analogy or something helps out the other one, you know, where you have one, you have an analogy to help, you know, to describe something and then it ends up that the, you know, somehow there's like a backwash, analogical backwash or something is what you called it. Anyway, that's kind of what I'm trying to talk about here with these examples or analogies and stuff for the points that we're trying to make. Um, and I think the more absurd they are, the harder it is then to ca- cash that out. For you. Oh, for last word. Fuck's that was sake. the last word. Jesus Christ. <laughs> for you. Because it's not for me because I can read anything and get it. Uh-huh. Anyway. Well, not anything. Uh, something you in there that you said made me want to define doubt or and or skepticism itself. You like etymologies, right? Or you used to. Well, I like the, um, the you know, etymology where you look at the pincers of the ants. Oh, shit. Oh, that's all the etymology. Oh, <laughs> Badum Ching. Uh, anyway, you keep doing these nice callbacks. Episode five on emergence and reductionism. None of a gun of a. Listen to it today. Um, to go. To Barclay again real quick. Quote, He then who entertains no doubt concerning some particular point, with regard to that point cannot be thought a skeptic. Gotta make it as complicated as possible, right? Mm. The skeptic is able to doubt something. That's all, you know, it's just, it's not saying that it is false or that you are, it's not even saying you are mistaken. Obviously, it's saying you might be. I, d- I doubt it, you know. Uh, doubting is taken to mean a suspension of affirmation or desire, uh, uh, affirmation or denial. In th- that's the old, you know, again, the Greeks had a lot of things before it all got lost and forgotten. <laughs> but the, the whole did. movement of Peronian skepticism and the, you know, it's all about a form of life and we want to just reach this state of comfort and ease and relaxation where we don't affirm or deny anything. Um, that's not really what I'm going for, but uh, just to play off that really quick, I wonder if it had something to do with like their technological level, you know, and you know, like it, they didn't have enough stuff to keep them occupied <laughs> so they could, you know, spend time thinking about things and, you know, they didn't have certain things that we have now, like mathematically, which have probably enabled a lot of these technologies. Anyway, it's I'm just totally riffing at this point. But I do wonder if they, they just they thought of all these things because that was essentially what they spent their time doing. Today, we spend our time like doing all this crazy shit on the Internet, you know, and they'll be like, man, they really got the Internet back then. But like, you know what I mean? Like, I just sometimes wonder if this was this is what they spent their time doing you know they just keep coming up with philosophy apps i hope so philosophy hacks it's another one but instead somewhere on the internet told me that the entomology of this is uh, from the greek skeptikos commonly translated as to consider or examine and skepsis inquiry and doubt and, you know, I like all that. Sounds good. 
Yeah. That's what I'm asking people to do. Don't walk around making truth claims. Instead, consider, examine, engage in inquiry, and doubt. That's all I want. That's all you ought to do. Oh, fuck God. No big deal. Son of a... So we did plenty on that first one. We'll run probably more quickly through a few of the others. Yeah. And yeah, we're already in Greece, so we'll just do this next one that's from Plato's Mino. Ooh, right? Yeah. Where if you don't already know the truth, how could you ever know that you have found it? Say two agents began an inquiry into a question. Um, Sherlock Holmes and James Bond or whatever, and they both are trying to figure out who did the thing. Yep. On day one, the two de- partner detectives don't know who committed the murder. One engages in inquiry number one. They go out and they call these people and they go to these places and they collect this evidence. The other one engages in inquiry two. They call different people and do different shit. Then the evidence that they accrue is non-identical. Nevertheless, there is a fact of the matter who committed the murder. So then when they come back to headquarters and sit at their little desks that always face each other, I don't know why they do that, but in the movies they always sit at these desks. (laughs) They both have different sets of evidence. They might indicate different people did it. They might not. Whatever. They could combine their evidence. They could even reach an agreement. Oh, well, given what you found and given what I found, yeah, I think we're going to agree it was Goldfinger. Whatever. Yeah. They could still be wrong. If they... How could they ever figure out who's right or who's wrong? They, the, at, in the, at 8 a.m., when you got there and drank your coffee and got the file on your desk, you didn't know who did the murder... At the end of the day, you've both engaged in different inquiries. How are you going to know at 5 o'clock who did? And again, I don't know if that was a good example. (laughs) (laughs) Uh... The general point, and I think this is all you need before I try to do the exemplar thing, and I don't know if I failed, but... To you... If you don't know the answer, how do you know when you found an answer? The right answer, you know? I don't know X. I get A, B, and C. I get all these choices. I prefer one to the others for reasons. But since, by hypothesis, in the stipulation, I don't know the right answer, then how could I ever, when I land wherever I land how do I know if that's it I have nothing to compare it to because I don't know the right answer Uh, I like the trying to find the murderer or something like that I mean um, yeah I mean that, that one was fine with me and this is another reason that I like an idealized version, though we don't often exhibit it in practice, of our legal system. They are not interested in who really committed the murder, as I understand it. What they're interested in is 
well, what are the facts that we have chosen to admit as evidence in this case? And does that, do th does that set of facts meet the standard that we've established for convicting someone of crime X? If so, we convict them. We make no claims that they really did it. We just make the claim that they, after engaging in this set of practices that is explicitly spelled out in these documents, we will consider them guilty and punish them accordingly. Blah, blah, blah. I don't know. I like that. doesn't matter if you really did it. Yeah, I, uh, I love this little <laughs> sub-disagreement that we've got going along here <laughs> examples versus your point or whatever that um is i mean i get where, where you're coming from too i'm just saying that i think adjudication of the point is you know one of the good ways to do it as an example um what about like legal precedent doesn't that have some you know, play in decisions yeah. and stuff like that. It's not just well; these are the facts as we admitted them in the in the the case or whatever, right? I think precedent plays. Don't they talk about matters of fact and matters of law? And precedent would be one way to establish what they call a matter of law, and or help you interpret the other sources of law, which can include the statutes and the Constitution itself. Precedent is like, is analogous to, is on par with, well, not on par necessarily, but it plays the same role as things like the Constitution or the state statutes. It's a place you can refer when making your decision. But it's an example. To establish I mean, isn't it kind matters of, of law. Isn't it kind of like an example? Like, isn't Roe v. Wade essentially an example of a case? You know, that kind of thing? Yeah, okay, sure. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. That you could, that the judge or the adjudicator could look at, well, what is another time that this issue came into question and how was it dealt with then? Right, and that might help. That's all I'm trying to say. I don't know. You want to move on to the next argument, sub-argument? Number three. <laughs> <laughs> the language argument. So this is going to be, if we can keep pushing forward, another future episode where we get to talk about the Kozhibsky-Sapir-Whorf hypothesis and linguistic relativism. But I think that can be used... That can be yoked to the skeptic's purpose as well. Yes. By talking about how, well, just to state it baldly and provocatively, all propositional knowledge would have to be expressed in some natural language or other. The worth premise would be this one, number two, that all natural languages contain structural commitments to a metaphysics. And then we've got the kind of 
Nietzschean, Whiteheadian premise of the structure of any natural language is determined at least in part by natural selection. And then, you know, you can bring in the whole meme talk there, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot to this one. And then to claim that natural selection doesn't track the truth, it is fitness, whatever, there's other factors. But that, so Joe's going to say that's a rock. Well, you're talking in a subject predicate is of identity language when you do that. Maybe that's not how the world works. That's just how English works. Mm. Maybe it's the case that English itself is predicated on a drastically false metaphysics. And maybe we're in a universe that doesn't have subject-predicate structure, or that there aren't things with properties that you can specify with nouns. That's all English stuff. Anything you're going to claim that you know, you're going to make your claim in a language. Maybe the language in which you make your claim itself is fucked from the start. Maybe your language is incapable of expressing a truth. Yeah. So in order to claim that you know X English sentence to be the case, you're going to have to prove to me that English itself is capable of expressing truth. When you do that, you're going to have to express it in a language. Infinite regress. Yeah, and I, I think that's kind of, uh, I don't want to say tangential. I want to say it's more than tangential, but that was a big thrust of what I think we were talking about in a way. I think we were talking about it with emergence last time. But, you know, we were talking about, you know, reductionism and stuff like that. That was the, you know, the metaphysical point and i was trying to say something along these lines of like well what if it's just the the way we do things linguistically um and not just linguistically but maybe there's some other almost biological component because it seems there are other things that also seem to have a similar uh pattern as the way we do language when we look at language you know and so maybe there's something about the way we do things that makes us come up with reductionism and emergence and stuff like that. And I don't know how that is committed to metaphysics. Um, but it, it seems to me, um, it seems strongly somewhat committed and that that kind of metaphysics is born or the, the stories are born out of the way we think and talk or whatever. Anyway, I, I, that seems relatable to me from the last time. Yeah. Boom, boom. And it <laughs> asks people to listen to more episodes. So that's good, too. You're advertising and you're making a point. Just being me, man. And I have an identity. Next argument. Uh -oh. <laughs> Future episodes. Next argument <laughs> is related and similar. I'm just calling this one the evolutionary argument. And this is basically the... Um, from Hume all the way through, like Daniel Kahneman and the cognitive science of, and what, like Dan Airely or whatever, and all these people that are pointing out nowadays how you've got all these cognitive biases and you don't know what the hell's going on up there. 
you're just a monkey that got evolved and you've got all kinds of broken epistemology that's built into your body. The content of any belief is at least in part determined by a cognitive interpretation of perceptual data. So that's kind of the Hume thing, Mm -hmm. that everything that's in the mind first came through the senses. Cognitive interpretations of data are theory-laden in the sense of, you know, all the philosophy of science, historians of science literature from... Kuhn to Van Frossen and all that stuff, you know, it's all theory-laden, and the theories come in part from your physiology. You've got the sense organs that you've got, and they can see light of these wavelengths and hear sounds of these wavelengths, and they miss all these other things, and there could be all sorts of imperfect, fallible theories built into your chimpy senses and your body because, again, as a premise from the previous argument, natural selection does not track the truth. It just cares about survival and reproduction, which might have tendencies to approximate the truth here and there and where it's efficacious, but I don't think it would at all be fair to claim that evolution is always and only interested in discovering that which is true so anyway you know this one's just basically you're in a body and your (laughs) body might be wrong be built on rules that value other things than pursuing the truth and gaining knowledge so you might be wrong well if my body is wrong. I don't want to be right. Oh, that, yeah, that was nice. <laughs> All right. Um, I want to give these all their day because they're all good. And so I'm not, I don't think I have too many problems with this one at all. Um, I kind of adhere to this one myself in various ways. Uh, what about the next argument? The next and final argument that I've bothered to include in this podcast is a kind of one that ties many or all of these together. And, you know, it basically is just asking, well, what if Heraclitus or his contemporary progenitor, Rupert Sheldrake or somebody, is right and everything is in flux? As far as I know, maybe... The world, the epistemic agent, and the language are all, always, in flux. Empirical observation of events in the past does not warrant absolute predictions of the future. Maybe Joe, when he said that is a rock, was correct, but maybe by the time the pressure waves have reached Dick's ears, something has changed to make it wrong. Maybe the universe has changed. Maybe the English language has changed. Maybe Joe and Dick as epistemic agents have changed somehow to make false what Joe intended to convey as a truth in the first place. I don't know how... 
I'm just saying with this one, in order for dogmatists to be right, for it to be possible to express a truth, you have to be able to prove to me that there's no flux in any of these things, in the language, in the agents, or in the world itself. And I don't know how the hell you're going to do that. Yeah. I mean, the... This is this is not as in vogue to say it this way, but as I learned it, you know, a man never steps into the same river twice or something like that. Yeah, uh, that's the cliche of from Heraclitus. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, that's his bumper sticker, hmm. and I I get it. I get that it's you know, the water that flowed by when you stepped in it one time is not the exact same molecules or even just the same chunk of water, whatever you want to call it, however you want to discretize it, even though it's a river flowing. Um, uh, you know, when you step in it again, it's just not the same thing. So it's not, you know, and, and there could be other things that alert you to that perhaps, or, you know, um, and you know maybe one time it was a dry stream and another time it was a flood you know you know whatever you know it's uh lots of things going on that could indicate that you know things are in flux they're they're moving they're flowing <clears throat> i i i really think that's a great example for the point he was trying to make winning good job old-fashioned yeah i mean not only did his example work for you it worked for 2500 years <laughs> yeah that's right. a damn good one um and across languages and as i read with his like wikipedia that like most of his stuff is lost or whatever so right. you can only yeah. imagine the good nuggets he had that's a tragedy i really like what ex what i am told uh, it was written by him, and I wish we had more. Okay, so let's get to the exemplification of what we're, you know, you have laid out a bunch of arguments. Right, and again, just to drill it in, yeah, repeat, repeat, you know, if I say it three times, it's true, is another bumper sticker. The point of all that shit for the last hour <laughs> was to establish the fallibilist premise if our ep our reasonable and responsible epistemic agent is aware of sound and feasible arguments that they might be mistaken, then they ought not make any truth or knowledge claims. And all of those arguments... So, according to the way I'm seeing this situation... And I might be wrong. Ah. <laughs> All right. In order for the dogmatists to win the day, they have to explicitly refute all five of those arguments, plus more. I mean, I don't intend those to be exact. All available, marshalable, skeptical arguments will have to be refuted actively in the dispute, in the conversation, in order for the dogmatist, the person who wants to make a knowledge claim, to be legitimate to do so. And it, so far in my experience, and for our one listener, 
whoever's out there, <laughs> send us, contact us, and let us know if you can refute these skeptical arguments. But, um, the dogmatist has to do them all in order to, to win, and I don't think they can do any of those. Fucking dogmatists. So you, okay, you must like this example, because the next thing that happens after all of the explicit numbered argumentation and philosophy, I, again, you know, because I've been influenced by this asshole, that I, that examples matter. <laughs> but, I mean, this is basically the same thing as the rock thing, right? I don't know. So we've got a person who is very dear to us, and we know this person, right? This is a an example from real life. They like to say things like, all right, I think skepticism is wrong, and I can prove it. Here's my example. That, and then they gesture toward it, because any time we're in the same room, it's present. That is a beer bottle. <laughs> I know that that is a beer bottle. It is true that that is a beer bottle. You goddamn skeptic. Mm -hmm. So the question for the enemy skepticism position is, ought that person make those assertions? Do you want to, you like examples, do you want to talk about this example? No, I only have like, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, <laughs> I only want to recount this, like my re recollection or whatnot, but, um, no, I mean, it's, it, I guess in some ways you're very, um, it, it's, it's astute to notice that it is similar to the rock example from Dick and Joe's little, um, dialogue in the beginning uh so now i'm not quite sure exactly if that's what this beer bottle situation was actually trying to do um well what it was trying to do for me is if you accept the definitions that we talked about at the beginning then when a person utters I know that is a beer bottle. Then, by definition, they are saying there it is an entailment that they are saying these they're committed to these three things. I believe the proposition that is a beer bottle. I am justified to believe that that is a beer bottle, and it is true that that really, in reality, absolutely is a beer bottle. And then that's the point of the five modes that we just went through of arguing that this number three, this part C, this, it is true that that is a beer bottle, may be mistaken. So then we run through it and we put the beer bottle and all this thing. Well, maybe it's not a beer bottle. Maybe you're dreaming that it's a beer bottle. Can you prove that you're not dreaming? And they're like, well, I don't know. I guess not. <laughs> And then you say, well, okay, then you might be mistaken. And then if you care about epistemic responsibility, you, then you shouldn't say you know it is. Because maybe it's not. All, all this makes me think that 
that our friend actually probably doesn't think this <laughs> anymore, <laughs> that they might actually be more skeptical than uh, they've, they've become more skeptical over the years. I don't know. I think so, though. I think so. And I'm not saying that they were dogmatic, but there was that moment where we were sitting in your living room and there was this beer bottle is right here. You know, I just, I remember that, that very clearly for some reason, because I think I was sitting to her right and you were across <laughs> and there were a bunch of other people there too. I, as I recall, um, I don't remember who all was there, but, um, I think that, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, I know. It's, it, it, I guess we kind of, we did kind of cover it with the rock though, to an extent. Uh, I think it's the same move. Yeah, it's the same move. I would agree. So. And so the whole thing to me is just predicated on the incoherence of the same person at the same time saying, it is true that here now before us is a beer bottle and, well, I might be mistaken, maybe it's not. Because... As long as we're willing to say that one can't or ought not hold both of those propositions at the same time in an epistemically responsible way, then enemy skepticism applies and they would have to back off. It cannot be stressed enough, I don't think, that in my opinion we are losing nothing that matters to us by adopting this stance. I think we can do everything that we want to do, not only just as well, but better, if we back off from dogmatism and accept enemies. Again, you know, to reference some earlier episode, I don't know which one it was, but we talked about probably the truth one, number four. I'm not advocating what I call epistemic egalitarianism, that which would be the position that, that was episode the four, correct yeah. stance <laughs> the correct stance would be to maintain complete equanimity between the alternatives that is a beer bottle and that is not a beer bottle and that is an alligator and that is ones and zeros in the matrix etc etc ad infinitum that's not the position. Mm -hmm. It's only that we should back off from that is a beer bottle, and I know it to be the truth, to I'm confident enough that that's a beer bottle that I'm going to operate as though it were. Because kind of, you know, by to me, by definition, by framing it that way, it doesn't change being able to drink out of it, being able to pick it up and set it down again, all these, you know, they say about the skeptic, well, how do you know when you take another sip that it's not going to have switched to poison? Or, what? you know, you attempting to use arguments from absurdity yeah. to flip them back against the skeptic and say, well, no one behaves as though they're a skeptic. Right, no one behaves as though they're that ridiculous, absurd, self-refuting version of skeptics that no one ever has argued for in the first place. Actually, I think in various times, people like Hume 
have argued for that. Yeah, I'm but, guessing you know, that silly people of them. argued themselves into a corner. <laughs> that's not what I'm trying to do, and that's not what enemy skepticism is about. It's just about talk and act in a way that's consistent with the current best available arguments. The current best available arguments include that that's a beer bottle, that it's not going to have switched to poison in the next drink, that the sun is going to come up tomorrow. Maybe it won't, but the best available arguments indicate that it will, and I'm going to behave as though it will, while at the same time refraining from making truth or knowledge claims. All of that, to me, seems consistent and easy and... You can have it both ways. Yeah. I uh, I think that, I mean, it's, it, that would be, a, if you had never practiced that, that would be a harder thing to get into, to practice. But I don't think people just slip a switch, do you? I guess not, but they should be able to. And this is another reason to... <laughs> Anticipate with glee the overtaking by the AI overlords or what, you know. Humans have a flaw in this way that there's a lot of um, developmental inertia. That they were trained in the first place to be dogmatists and it's hard for them to stop. But that's just a contingent fact about human beings and I don't make too much of it. Well, <clears throat> okay. Um, I'm satisfied that we covered this idea. Are you? I no. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. I hope so. You hope you're satisfied. I hope we have covered it. Oh. Well, I mean, that's not what I sufficiently. <laughs> I was asking. I wasn't like we've covered this sufficiently. Agree. Like, I'm just saying I'm satisfied that we've covered this statement about me. Uh, anyway, um, is there more than that you feel that we have not covered that we should for the one listener? Not obviously. Okay, so you can kick yourself later. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. Well, we can always revisit this or when trying to uh, um, elaborate on another topic, maybe some additional piece that is important will be able to be you know, embedded in another podcast, in another... Yeah, this piece. one, if nothing else, is very central to me and as a podcast host... The things that are central to me are relatively central to the podcast. So we'll probably come back to it at various times. And if anyone's listening and gives us feedback, then we can go back to it then. I guess I should feel satisfied that I've made the case, hopefully. Uh, and hearing that you feel it has been made is helpful. Well... Right. <laughs> I think I, yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> okay. Sounds good. 
um you've like rolled yourself into the example of the enemy skeptic i think by the end of this you're just sort of like you're like exemplifying enemy skepticism well hopefully i exemplified this at all times though i'm sure i slip up here and there i i don't know it is i just an aspiration of mine to be a consistent enemy skeptic i just you know can recall what i've written down in my journal every time that you slipped up you know <sighs> all right well i'm getting the feeling you don't want this to end do you want to keep going I'm getting the feeling you want this to end. Do you want to? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, I mean, that's the end of the presentation. I don't know if there's anything we want to go back to or if we're satisfied. Uh, the clock says we're good. <laughs> that's right. The sign says it's a zebra. Yep. Um. Yeah. I- Do you want to talk about aughts or would that just be a whole nother thing? That could be a whole podcast probably. I worry that this this would stretch into four hours. All right. Well, let's call it good. (laughs) Okay. I think it's good to call it good. Our one listener's ears are bleeding. You know. Watch out for the coyotes. Yep. Until next time. Yeah. um, I don't think we did the boop, 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 did we? And we also didn't say... That now there's this thing called com. You should all go there. But I can say that at the end because now I can go take a shower. Because I don't, I feel dirty after advertising. Oh, I was going to say, I was like. Thank God we don't have any real advertisers. I couldn't do it. Oh, I would, I guess I'd be the one to do it. And then I'd, I'd scoop up all the money, right? Because it would be me doing it. That sounds good. Is that how it works? Uh, yeah. <laughs> but the, doesn't the pimp get anything? It just all goes to the whore. All right. I don't know. I just know that if if uh, you don't split a fifty fifty, you don't get the money, man. You'd have to go. You'd have to do like the the flashlight thing and all that. I'd let you do the dirty one so that you have to take a shower later. Or something. Boop, boop, ba doop. Baba Ganoush. Toddlers. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye-bye. Good night.